We've arrived at a day that would have been unimaginable to previous generations in the West. In fact, uh, we have arrived at a time that would have been unimaginable to whole civilizations across the stretch of history. Ours is a time when there is no definition as to what constitutes a marriage or a family. Homosexuality is an ancient sin, but it is only in our lifetime that a society has imagined that marriage is an appropriate term to reference homosexual partners. This has never been. No Bible-believing follower of Jesus Christ would ever define marriage as between people of the same sex, and yet our children need to kind of just take it in and think on it. Our children are growing up in a world our grandchildren, as I see some here, they're growing up in a world where that is the default definition. It will include that. That's understanding that two men are a marriage and two women are a marriage. This has never been the case in past in history. Their default perception of family includes a child in a home with two fathers and with two mothers. That is how marriage will be defined for so many. But the wheels on this radical reinvention project have not stopped turning. A recent Star Tribune article uh, ran um, a focus on what sociologists are calling polyamorous marriages. Uh, by definition, a polyamorous marriage is one in which there are multiple partners of whatever sex. Three women and two men are married. Four men and a young woman are married, and that's going to be defined as a family uh, in the days ahead. Since our society insists on giving individuals libertarian freedom, there's really no end to this. It can be anything that anyone wants it to be, and there is really then no thing stopping, no philosophy, no perception, no foundational idea that's stopping that three men and one woman to throw a sow in or a dog. And that bestiality at this point is offensive, but you're beginning to see at this nipping edges that it has become a joke. And when something goes from offensive to we start joking about it, it's only the next step where that will become where we're headed and what becomes accepted because there's nothing philosophically, foundationally against it. Sex with children is still offensive, and I don't know that we will live to see the day where that ends. I hope we don't, and we certainly don't seem to be bent that way as a culture. But again, there's nothing but this flimsy, subjective, democratic preference that stands between us and the normalization of any form of depravity and any redefinition of marriage. When public opinion is the only thing standing between a free society and its passions, public opinion will soon accommodate whatever people want. And if you want it, then the path has already begun to be started and blazed down toward its final realization in your life, or we are limiting your freedom. It's a world we're in. We know, of course, that the tragedy is not merely that conservative values are being lost. The tragedy is that this is bringing destruction into people's lives. It is hurting the family, and the family is falling apart, and it's a satanic triumph. 
There's much talk about not discriminating against minorities and disadvantaged people in our society, and we rejoice at that conversation. We say, yes, we, that, that is right, and we support that in principle. But the exasperating irony is that the most expansively disadvantaged position in which you can place a child is at the mercy of his mother's will to either kill him or let him live in the womb. That, talk about a disadvantage. Just what mom wants right now means I live or die. And we don't talk about that disadvantage, and we don't talk about the disadvantage when a child is growing up in a single-parent home, typically without any meaningful involvement from a father or a grandfather. So there's, there's a talk about economic disadvantage and etc. But the greatest disadvantage we can place a child is to place that child in a one-parent home. No conversation about it because it impinges on sexual freedom. And we want nothing to do with that. Now, obviously, there can be single-parent homes that God blesses. They are providentially in that condition. And when they're providentially in that condition, it seems to me, at least by way of observation, if not even just saying that I know what our, who our Father is, when a person is in that spot, God, in His grace, comes alongside. A church comes alongside. Family members come alongside and support that single parent in that setting. But we have whole uh, neighborhoods in our world that are, that are single parent almost thoroughly through and through. And there's no discussion about these things. And as a result, again, back to the point, is that without the foundations of what marriage is and without an understanding of its importance in God's design, we have a society that is crumbling. The family is falling apart, and it was intended to be, by God, a part of what holds and stabilizes a culture. Spiritual rebels, as we talk about these things, put their fingers in their ears and hum loudly. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear about a home operated the way that God has designed it. But the good news is that we possess the objective light of God's written revelation. We, we possess the truth about marriage. We possess the truth about how it was created to function. And this is our great gift from God, a great mercy. And I'd like us to think for a few moments about God's revelation to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy to apply these words to the topic of marriage. <clears throat> As we pick up this topic first of God as giver, we're going to look at kind of the threefold idea outlined here of God as giver. But before I, I'll come back to that. But let's first just think through what God reveals to Israel here, and, and just taking it as New Covenant believers, but looking at this from the standpoint of marriage, think about, in our cultural context, these words. For, for ask now of the days that are past which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or, has, or was ever heard of? Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? 
Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? We could put it in terms of, has any God ever sent his son to die and to pay the penalty of your sin and to give you forgiveness and hope and rescue you from death itself? Not just Egyptian slavery, but a God who has come to rescue you from death. This is our God. This is His greatness. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you see His great fire and you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. And because He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore you shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. I give you my commands that it may go well with you. What nation can claim this? That God has spoken to give you life and hope and strength and to to stabilize your children, to bless them. In chapter 28, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. This is just pure, this is not pure competitiveness. But he's saying, I am giving you the light of my word, and by obeying what I have called you to do, it will be clear that you are hearing the voice of God. By the way that you live, there'll be a different way of living that shows you, in comparison with those who follow false gods, that you are in touch with the true and living God. Verse 9, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. You will be distinct. Holiness speaking of distinctive, of moral purity, but primarily the word meaning distinctiveness. You will be set aside. You will be in comparison with other nations, a unique people because of this word. I've sworn it to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways, and all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. I think that's probably talking about military fear. But as we apply it and consider it, there's a sense in which there's a reverence, a respect there for those who follow the ways of God, and particularly in the sociological terms we're speaking of here in the area of marriage. Deuteronomy 30, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Focus on that word, that he will circumcise your heart, this indicating to us that God gives us his word, he calls us to obedience, but he must act. He must give us a heart to hear his word, to obey his word, and he promises, I'll do that. I'll give you a heart that is receptive to this revelation, that your lives may be different and distinct and beautiful and solid. 
I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land. God has sworn to you to give them based on His promise. Again, there's a distinction for us on this side of the cross on some level, but tremendous application here as well. I've set before you life and death, and I look at marriage, I look at the culture which we're in, the the family that's falling apart, and we see God's Word, and He's saying this to us, I'm giving you life. When I speak to you about what a husband is, what a wife is, what a marriage is, what a family is, I'm giving you life. Choose life. Choose my blessing as you walk in obedience to my word, as you order your life in such a way that it pleases you. So we turn then, first of all, in this first session, and they're fairly brief, um, so we'll just plow through this pretty quickly, but God is giver. I'd like us to think there from that aspect about marriage, first of God is giver. God is the one who gives the gift of marriage. That says much. It also, right out of the gate, completely distinguishes us from the world in which we live. Marriage is my thing. I want to do it or I don't want to do it. It is for my convenience. It's for my pleasure. It's for my satisfaction. I think that it's a good idea. I'll get out of it if it ever proves to not be a good idea. I'm in the steering wheel. Marriage is all about me. And in that thinking, we have uh, families that are crumbling and falling apart and breaking apart and all kinds of social disaster around that very type of self-oriented thinking. We have the light from God's Word to say God is the giver of marriage. It's a gift from Him. Let's think about the implications of that. What this says about God, that He is the giver of marriage. He is the creator and the designer of marriage. As Genesis says, Adam, for him, was not found a helper. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept, took one of the ribs, closed up its place, the flesh, and the rib and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God is actively involved here. He creates, he brings her to him. God creates the attraction then that men and women have toward one another. The pleasure they find in intimacy, the mysteries of their distinctiveness. This is God's doing. He brought this about. He brings her to the man as a gift. The man says, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's great joy here in this. There's wonder in this poem. And God created society then to thrive on the foundation of the union of one man and one woman covenanted together in marriage for life. A man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they will become one flesh. This is God's design. And I think if we truly grasp the significance of this point, and we real, then we realize that the project is so much greater than us. There's so much more going on than just boy meets girl and there's this spark and we have this thing they call marriage. It's so much deeper than that. Our Creator has designed marriage not as a matter of convenience for the individual, not merely for happiness and for fulfillment, 
but for his grand purpose of blessing humanity through the ages and bringing this man and this woman together that they would be a solid piece in the puzzle of the strength and the prosperity of human life and prospering. If we don't lift our definition of marriage into this higher purpose, we will be drugged down to these smaller, self-centered, mud puddle type of discussions. That it's all about us and we don't feel very big. Or it's all about us and I want out of this right now. But when we think of it as God is giving this gift, it it reorders our thinking here. He is the designer of marriage. He is also the lawgiver then of marriage. He doesn't just give us marriage and say, go figure it out. I've brought about this really nice thing, but I haven't given you a manual to know how to use it. Uh, Clearly, that's not what he said. He loves us enough to teach us how it works. And his revelation is given to us that we might put it into play and see how it works for the glory of his name and the joy of our hearts. Disaster and misery await all couples who go about marriage on their own terms. And let me say this real clearly about Dan and Beth and about you as a couple. We all go about it on our own terms. We do this regularly. And what, how we need to respond is the word repentance. Confession and repentance and forgiveness. We do go at it our own way. And we need, to, we need to be really clear about this because if we say God's given us his word, we have his word, we're special people, uh, we have this insight as to how the family's to work, and, uh, but then we think we rely upon ourselves and our own understanding, we're going to really miss a lot. We don't. We, we don't find his word easy to obey many times. We often go against it. But again, back to the point, God speaks, and it's paramount that we actively obey His Word as husband and wife. These are fundamental, basic, foundational ideas. We see this, but it's important that we keep coming back to it and recognizing we are here, husband and wife, in order to obey the Word of God. And by obeying that Word, uh, we find His blessing. He gives us that law. He gives us His Word. Kostenberger has said the marriage bond is more than a human contract. It is a divine yoke. And the way in which God lays this yoke upon a married couple is not by creating a kind of mystical union, but by declaring his purpose in his word. I like the clarity of that, the kind of between your eyes uh, sort of thinking on that. It's a yoke. Now, a yoke isn't, it's, it's a thing of work, but it's a helpful thing. But it's work. There's going to be a relationship here where we pull in obedience to the Word of God. It's not this mystical union that there's this spark there between us that's just so special and so magic. I mean, that's there, celebrate it and be thankful for it. But that's going to kind of at times come and go. What doesn't come and go is God's counsel to us. And so we put it on like a yoke and we go together Uh, husband and wife, under the yoke of the Word of God, it is our light, it is our hope, it is our strength, and it is our task. So God commands us to love one another, to speak kindly and edifyingly to one another, to repent, to confess, to forgive, to put one another's interests ahead of our own. And these are not suggestions. These are a yoke we put on in a way that we live. 
Marriage is a playing field on which we are called to obey God's word. As we listen and talk, as we eat and drink, as we plan and dream, as we work and play, and as we strive for spiritual, sexual, emotional intimacy, it is a walk of obedience to the counsel of God. As He is the giver, this is the conclusion. He is thirdly the benefactor of marriage. This means uh, he is the giver and benefactor. I realize it's just two words for the same concept, but I want to use it to kind of emphasize that God gave you marriage to bless you, to give you joy, to provide an opportunity to please him in this relationship. God gave us marriage to bless us. I believe he gave you marriage, your husband, your wife, to bless you. He is the giver. He doesn't give bad gifts. We're bad people, but he doesn't give bad gifts. The danger is for us to think, perhaps there's some who would say, I wish God had not bothered. Some get to that point, and, and I might be preaching to the choir here today, but we need to take what we know and keep learning and growing as we can help others because there's some that aren't here today, and I don't know why, and I'm not asking people, but I, I, I experience enough to know there's some that don't want to get anywhere near this conversation today because it's painful. Their marriage is painful, and they might say, I just wish God hadn't bothered. I would have preferred another gift or something along those lines. These are idolatrous thoughts. I haven't yet met a troubled couple as I've done marriage counsel for a lot of years, I've never met one that has ever admitted we never wanted to be together, we never liked each other, we never found anything attractive in one another. The most troubled of marriages, if you can get them to just wake up long enough to be honest enough, you can get a grin on their face when they talk about their wedding day, when they talk about when they first met, when they talk about their dating relationship. There was a time when I liked him. There was a time when I liked her. We wanted to be married. I mean, I I suppose there's a forced marriage here or there, but in our culture, pretty rare. There was that day when you recognized she was a gift. He was a gift. The thing is, nothing's changed. Nothing ever will. Our, Our wives, our husbands are a gift from God. Marriage is a gift from Him. He is blessing you. He is a is the benefactor in this. So in the book of Genesis, as in Christian weddings, God brings a woman to a man and says, here, he is yours from me. Here, she is yours from me. That's that's the, the beauty of it that we need to keep coming back to. My mate is a gracious, undeserved gift from God. There's some of you, your heart is... Rising up with joy, you say, Amen. I know that every day. I think that every day. I get that. There might be some of you here saying, man, I'm having a hard time seeing that. I want to talk especially to those that are struggling with that idea. Your husband, your wife is a gift from God. And if you can't see that, you've got to clear your sight. You've got to come back to God, not to your marriage relationship. You've got to come back to Him and say, there was a day when He said, she is yours and she's a gift from my hand. He is yours. He's a gift from my hand. 
If we say something like, well, it's not a gift anymore, or I'm not, it's no, it brings no joy to me, God is calling us to the response of changing our perspective back to where it needs to be. God, in His mercy, designed to bring the two of you together in marriage. That's His gift. It is His gift. And a healing start may begin, even here today, later this morning, as we get together for a time of prayer and to thank God in prayer for your mate in his or her presence. It might just be a project you can put on for later or for later this morning as we're here together. We should thank God for one another in prayer because he is the giver of this relationship. And that can really begin to change a lot if we just come back to that very simple principle and perspective. This also says about God that he is the enabler of marriage. Going back to Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6 and the circumcised heart concept, God gives you the gift of marriage. He gives his commands, but only by conscious obedience will we ever make any progress in this relationship. And we're not going to get there without his help, without his aid. God will enable Uh, what we need to do and what we need to become in marriage. And then God is the glory of marriage. If God is the creator, the designer, the lawgiver, the benefactor, the enabler of all that is good in marriage, then he, of course, is the one who is glorified and magnified when our marriages sing, when they are faithful to him. And going toward his glory is what the whole point is. I wear the yoke of the word of God, carrying forward in obedience so that we are relating to each other, husband and wife, for the glory of the Lord, for the, for the glory of His name. That's what I live for. That's what we're, how we're related. So God is not the rabbit's foot to rub for good luck in your marriage. He's not the fixer that sprinkles pixie dust on your marriage when you get into trouble. He is the glory of it all. Our relationship as husband and wife magnifies the splendor of his name, of his word, of his goodness, of his blessing, of his provision. And even in the most troubled of Christian marriages, each of us then is called to live for God's glory. I'm in this relationship. It's in the most troubled setting. It's not a happy one. It's not a mutually productive one. It is filled with sin and trouble and heartache. But I'm in this relationship for the glory of God to magnify His name. It means I look at it much differently than the world is coaching me to look at it. It's not working. Get out of it. What's your problem? Move on. No, this is about God and His glory and His gift, and I've got to think about this very differently. It might mean that all we're doing in glorifying God for some time is to love our enemy. Jesus called us to do that. It might mean, of course, that we're loving our soulmate, and it is a joy. But wherever you land on the spectrum, being a husband and wife is a call to glorify God's name. And I'm, I'm, uh, I have very limited time here to go on this last point. I've kind of focused pr- primarily on the first and by design, but just a few words of application. So what does it say about us? And I've discussed that already as we've talked about God's impossible not to, but I want to f- uh, kind of home in just a little more carefully here. It says that in our marriage we are worshipers. Um, let's, let's say that you're, you have a job, you travel the world, 
and you've just made it a principle that you never work on Sunday because your company doesn't demand that you do, but you've made it a principle, I'm going to be in a gospel-preaching church every Sunday. And uh, this, let's just say it's a five-year stint, you're traveling the world, you're hardly home ever, uh, but uh, this won't be forever because that would be a bad, <laughs> a bad job. You need to quit that job. But <laughs> all that being said, for way of illustration, I'm going to be in a gospel-preaching church every Sunday. Over the whole world, you're going to find yourself in some churches you just can't relate to at all, right? I mean, there, I've been in situations where I, I say, this music, I can't even understand it. I mean, I don't even know what they're doing. I have no clue what is happening here. It, it, it's, it's weird. You get in a spot, there's some places you get in a spot where it's maybe uncomfortable because you're not used to this, it's, but you get, I can kind of get that, but then you're in others, you just go, this is like strange, especially when you're in, in Eastern cultures. It can just be really, really, what's your attitude going to be? They go into these church services and say, these stupid people, they don't know how to sing, they don't know what music is, this is so dumb, I can't stand this, I'm leaving. You would never think like that, right? You, you don't expect it to necessarily be understandable to you, but what would you do? You would give yourself to worship God the best you could in that environment. And, and that's, and I, I guess, I just think of it because I've been in that environment. I don't understand what's going on on a lot of levels, and I don't understand the language. I don't even know what the words are singing. But I, I, in that moment, seek to look to God and say, these are the people that he's redeemed, and they're singing for joy, and I can join into that as far as I can get into it. And I, I think on some level, we need to think of our marriages that way. The environment may be very uncomfortable. It may not be what you would choose and what you would like, but you, you strive to worship God in that environment as far as you possibly can. It may be something that is extremely comfortable, and you want to watch then as we talk about our own churches that we not fall in love with idolatrously the comfort level that we find in our local church and its worship. Now, obviously, in worship, there's uh, pieces that wherever you go in a gospel-preaching church that are there, they're biblical, they're foundational, and we need to be striving that by way of illustration to find that in our marriages. But the environment may not be comfortable. The environment may differ. You may find that there's a couple that you envy because there's so much joy, there's so much oneness there, and you don't have that. Worship God. Worship God in your marriage. Give to Him the glory and seek Him. It means that we are office bearers. Uh, this is making much of the same point, but looking at it from a different angle. In permitting you to get married, God placed you in an office and you are responsible to uphold the integrity of that office. Um, you are to magnify the Lord who commissions you to that office. I serve as a police chaplain. There was an annual meeting here this a uh, couple weeks ago, and I was sitting there while all the officers stood and took the oath of office again, kind of like we do our covenant renewal and and and, and uh, speak our covenant. And I'm I'm sitting there listening to what they're saying and going, "Wow, this is good. This, this, I hope these guys do this." I mean, they, it, we're asking a lot of these officers to to be faithful people and to be upstanding and to honor their badge, their office. 
to fulfill that office honorably and to take an oath to do so well. That's what we all did when we were married. We entered into covenant with one another to uphold an office. We did not covenant to be happy, and if I'm ever not happy, to get out. We covenanted to love one another for life as God the giver leads us to see, to see it. And so making this covenant, it's not that, is it hard? Yes. Is it a joy? It can certainly be, and, and it should be. But as it is difficult, um, we need to have compassion for one another. We need to love and support one another. But we uphold an office, and we need to never forget that. I'm here in this marriage as a representative of Jesus Christ on earth. And that, again, can change everything, just the perspective. And we're lifelong learners of one another, of God and His counsel. We are builders, builders of a solid foundation for our walk with God, a solid foundation on which our children can thrive. We are building, in fact, a small island of stability in a sea of chaos for the good of this world. As the family crumbles, as marriages crumble, by God's grace, we can be a lighthouse beaming light to a lost world because we're building something that God has given us the opportunity to build. So our marriage, your marriage, it's not all about you. It's not all about your happiness, your fulfillment, your comfort. Your marriage is all about God the giver. And our call is to be then a fundamentally God-centered people in this relationship.